to To Your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, guys. And we are picking up at sort of um, what I would argue the downward trend of uh, Gideon's Gideon. life, at least, and in some ways, uh, the continued downward trend of this whole book. Yeah, it is just really like a downward spiral. There's like, you know, you talk about the cycles that happen here, but it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse every time. And so Gideon went from the frightened, uh, timid version of himself to this sort of bloodthirsty, uh, he's he's out to destroy whoever gets in his path kind of Yeah, of he just gets super mad and like starts to threaten them and... Yeah. Yeah. So he chases after these two guys. Some of the cities don't seem to want to help Gideon in the process of chasing down these two random, or not random, but these two uh, guys that, that Gideon's after. And so um, Gideon captures them, destroys his own countrymen in these cities that uh, that these people didn't help him from, and then uh, tries to get his own son to, to kill uh, Zeba and Zalmuna and... Uh, his son's too young for that, and it's just it's a it's a mess. It's, it's really meant messy. to be It's really ugly. He starts taking trinkets from uh, the captured kings, and yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's sort of I the think end of the battle. There, he just became cocky. Like he saw the success he was having in obeying God, and started to believe that he was strong in and of himself to start to do stuff, and that he had maybe the special connection with God and could execute justice outside of God's provision or mercy in his life and i mean gosh we we don't do this with like wiping out cities or like killing people but i sure do start to think that because i didn't yell at my kids for a few days that i have the personal strength to not do that yeah and although the word pride's really not in judges we'll see from this story from Samson, yeah, stuff like that so much arrogance the, the overconfidence and, and, and self mm-hmm. and so Gideon melts down all these uh, trinkets, which should sound once again kind of similar. Everything that they got from their plunder, it should sound like a little bit of a golden calf story. Uh, Melt them down and then make this ephod, this sort of uh, breastplate that the priest uh, would wear. And everybody seems to be worshiping something about this this ephod Um, that's back in Gideon's town and um, yeah it seems to be about Gideon even even though Gideon's like I won't be your king it still seems like Gideon is about Gideon at this point in time right and he kind of yeah even if he's saying he doesn't want to do it he kind of wants to do it and leads Um, him into this idolic idolatry practice of the ephod in some ways right you know and and at this point nothing has been said about the law nothing has been said about the priests and judges so we don't know But there's a chance that like Gideon doesn't even know how to worship Yahweh because he's never heard the book of the law. I mean, people don't have Bibles in their homes. They don't have ways to do this other than through the storytelling and then through the reading of the law once every seven years. So if that's not happening, uh, who knows what kind of like forms of worship they're going to employ for Yahweh. Yeah, it's interesting because we hear about all the different tribes as the book goes in some ways, even from the Mm -hmm. opening chapter. But you know who we don't hear from in this book? Is the Levites like we hear almost nothing? That's about really the true. And so, yeah. But Gideon dies. So starts another cycle. Yeah. Um, they turn to and hoard after the ba- the Baals. Uh, Bimelech seems to be the one to show up on the scene. He's Which not is- even introduced as a particular oppressive force or anything. He just sort of shows up. Yeah, and it's. I think it's really interesting to point out that Abimelech's name means my father is king. So Gideon is his father. So Gideon, while he says, I don't want to be a king, you know, we want to follow God, he has a son and names him my father is the king. So um, there's definitely some conflicting there. But not only, like, Abimelech is not, like, 
Abimelech is the son of Gideon's concubine. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're starting to see in these sort of last few cycles, like even all the details aren't even included anymore. Like we don't, we don't get Israel turned to God in repentance. That's part of the story per se or anything like that. It's just, there's, there's now another oppressive force and there will be another sort of judge to show up and, and help them. Yeah. So, um, we get sort of the, yeah, the Abimelech story is just a, a bit messy and, um, he goes to the Shechemites and is like, hey, yeah. do you want yeah, all he, these people to rule you or just me? Just me? Cool. I'll go kill the rest of them. Yeah. And he kills uh, six, nine out of 70 of them. Jotham manages to sneak out. And then uh, to the Shechem people, he gives this parable. And he's like, look, there's there's these different trees. and They do they do their own thing. But then if you appoint this guy as king, he's like a bramble bush. And 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 ultimately will bring fire to you in the end if you if you appoint him because he's not a real king. And if he's a real king, then great. But he, he, Jotham seems pretty clear. This guy's not going to be a, no, the right king. Yeah. And eventually the Shechemites get tired of it. Uh, they they plan an attack. They try to use Gaal. Um, but Zebel sort of lets them know, hey, I don't really like this Gaal guy. And it lets Abimelech know about it. And so Abimelech is informed and ultimately kind of snuffs out their their rebellion and causes the thing that Jotham had talked about to happen. Like they they end up getting burned in this temple. Um, the prophecy is fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And he tries to do it to a tower as well. And then we see Abimelech's demise at the hands of a woman, which seems to offend him greatly. Right. <laughs> Enough Anything that he's like, but a any, woman yeah, killing any, me. <laughs> Enough that he's like, I need a man to kill me real quick before I die. So that uh, some so people, pe- yeah, people will know it's at the hand of a man that I died. So, yeah, yeah what a mess. And then we read. That God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And so, I mean, we see that God comes back and is like, I'm going to use you for my sovereign purposes to do what I will. But it doesn't mean you're not going to suffer um, the judgment of your unfaithfulness. Yeah, and, and Abimelech seems like the way the st- story kind of is told and the way chapter 10 begins, like we are, we are sort of introduced as Abimelech as like, this is not just a foreign oppressor. This is like even one of your own people oppressor yeah. who's, who's who's causing your own problems. And it takes Tola and Jair to to finish the cycle of the judges that show up to to bring peace and rest. Right. So we don't learn much about Tola and Jair. Nope. Jair had thirty sons, thirty donkeys, and thirty cities, and that's all there is. Yep. <laughs> and so um, we eventually to... get. Uh, the the cycle beginning again uh, with the Philistines and the Ammonites and uh, yeah. the people of Israel start crying out again. But right, they um, start to serve more and more pagan gods. It's like they're going on journeys to be like, do you guys have any gods we can serve? Anybody <laughs> else we can serve? I mean. <laughs> And Israel cries out and God's impatient. And he's like, listen, if you want to work so hard to serve these other gods, why don't you ask them to help you? Yep. He's like, I'm not going to serve you anymore. Uh, right. So, um, but there's good news. Israel responds. Yeah. And, and, and they, they do it in, not just in word, but indeed they, they get rid of their idols. And God seems to actually respond to this moment mm-hmm. of like, God seemed to be sort of at his wits end, but he's like, you know what? Good. I'm glad you've been obedient. And, and yes, your misery, it's, it's getting old. It's getting old to him and he doesn't want their misery anymore. Right. And so, and um, so he raises up or shows up 
Yeah. And then Jephthah. there's this guy named Jephthah, um, which uh, he's kind of kicked out of his house by his half-brothers who are the legitimate kids, while Jephthah is sort of the illegitimate kid. Uh, but we're also introduced to him as sort of this mighty warrior. And as the Ammonites start attacking the 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 the, 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 um, the Jephthah's family is like, hey, come back. Uh, the, the, we we need you now. Uh, we know we, we, we hear you're out. a mighty warrior, and he's sort of like, uh, so if I come back, let me be clear, and I can rule over you guys. They're like, yes, come, come fight for us. Yeah, um, and and I think he just experience or expresses this really strange mixture of faith and foolishness. He knows the history of Israel, and he knows God's work of deliverance um, and God's judgment, but he also acts incredibly foolishly and has a terribly weak character within all of it as well. Yeah, yeah. His his, his statement to the MNI king is so good. It's like, yeah, all these other people came up against Israel and it didn't turn out well for them. And who are you going to serve, Yahweh or Chemosh? Like, it's sort of like presented there for them. And then uh, Jephthah's Jephthah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jephthah, which is always a good line, though it's super confusing when we get into the book of Samson. But um, Jephthah plays this weird, like, um, game that I think many of us sometimes play with God, mm-hmm. where he's like, hey, God, if you only do this, then I'll give this to you, or I'll give this up, or I'll sacrifice this. And I mean, how often uh, those prayers get played out. It's like, God, if you just give me a little bit more income, uh, I'll give away this much for that. And God, if you just do this, I'll do this. And so, um, yeah, it's it's such a game that, that people play, and it certainly does not work out yeah. well for Jeff. So, yeah, so don't think you're beyond bargaining with God like he is. You may not do it and sacrifice a child. Yeah, so as he's walking home, I think he's hoping for some kind of goat or chicken to walk out that door, and it's his daughter. And um, and now it's sort of the whether Jephthah is obedient to the oath he made. And not only that, there's 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 a little bit of how to interpret the, the story that does open the door a little bit to, hey, the daughter went away for a couple months instead of him doing the actual sacrifice like he said. So maybe he came back and like the virginity was what was sacrificed. Like she had to be a virgin for the rest of her life. And there's other ways to interpret it. But I don't know. A, a pretty plain reading seems like. He, he ultimately yeah, he sacrificed her and in no way and, and not in a way that God was like, yeah, I want you to do that. It was Jephthah made a vow and he thought the vow had to be kept. Uh, yeah. He, I mean, he, there's not a, like an instruction for a vow like this in scripture. No, uh, I think it was a, a, a pretty pagan plan and a way of kind of coercing God to do what he wanted him to do. Yep. It was not a step of faith. And then uh, we get an accusation from the Ephraimites that uh, will sound familiar. If you remember back in chapter eight, they kind of came up in the Gideon story to be like, hey, like, why'd you go to, go do this without us? And they do that again to Jephthah. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it ends up causing a whole civil war amongst the people. Um, and and uh, the uh, Jephthah and uh, his company ultimately kind of destroy the Ephraimites in the process because they don't know how to pronounce this one word because their dialect is slightly different. And it's a good way to tell which group you're a part of. It's super interesting, but it's, yeah. it's just a mess. It's a mess of a civil war. Right. Um, the first one, the first real civil war we see in Israel. And just can you imagine the grief that God felt over his people who all came from Abraham fighting with one another over who got to fight in a battle or not? Yeah. What a mess. But there are judges. There are bright spots. Uh, it's just interesting because the bright spots in the book have no details. It's like, well. So we don't really know yeah. if it's a bright spot or not. True. It is like a coming up for air when you've been reading like, these hey, really there, there, yucky there were these years and things were okay for these years or this year's. Like no crisis is reported. No news is good news, right? Uh, and then we get um, what is, I think, the messiest, one of the messiest, I guess, of stories in all of scripture of just like, all right, what is going on? And 
Should we <laughs> like this guy? Is he supposed to be like a positive model? What what do we do with Samson? And, yeah. Um, he it is a mess of a story. And, a mess. Um, and it starts with a sort of positive moment. It kind of feels like this hearkening back to Adam and Sarah, or Abraham and Sarah, and right. there's baby. It's gonna be promised. Some birth and, announcement. And, and yeah, the it, parents it feels, are fairly faithful. Yeah. And he's going to have this sort of Nazarite style vow, and um, and and he's going to be born, and we're not supposed to cut his hair, and, it's, and the spirit of God's going to be upon him. Okay, this is cool. sounding good. Yeah, it's a good start. It's going to be a hero and story. And then chapter fourteen happens, uh, and and it seems like an awful start right away. Um, he he's a Nazarite he's set apart to, to 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 be obedient to the, not only the Nazarite vow, but like to the rest of the law. Like that would have been the expectation. You follow the law, and this is the person who follows the law and has a few more laws added on. That's what a Nazarite is. And the first thing he does is go get me a Philistine wife. And, so, and the parents are like, uh, I don't think so. And he was like, No, this is what I want. Yeah. So you even show him just kind of not honoring his parents in this as well. Yeah, and, and what a mess. And so, um, so he goes down to uh, this. To, to the Philistine wife, he kills kills this lion along the way, and um, and, and he's just doing what is right in his eyes. Like he even said, even says she was right in Samson's eyes. And um, as he comes back by this line later, there'll be honey in it, which is uh, I think there's some imagery there uh, to to kind of parse out. Uh, honey would have been tied to the promised land it's mm-hmm. the land flowing of milk and honey and so um is is the promised land the thing that that they are supposed to be reaping um coming out of what is the carcass of something whether it's going to be the carcass of samson since he's the last judge and what we get out of this will finally be the kings or is it um the canaanites are the dead carcass and the honey's coming out of like their destruction uh, it's hard to it's hard to know but um i think there's some imagery there to, to parse out and he does this whole riddle Mm-hmm. with these 30 men um and they end up getting info from samson's wife who just wears him down which will be a motif again um and uh, and quite, then he gets real mad yeah he goes the opposite route of jephthah jephthah's like i made this vow and i gotta kind of stick to it and <laughs> samson's like i told you uh if you solve this riddle i'll give you this but Never mind. I'm just going to kill you all. Yeah. And, and he wipes them all out. Um, and then go home to his father's house and yeah. pout for a this little This is like while. during the wedding celebration. And so we don't know. It seems like he didn't really finish the, the process of consummating, I guess, the, the, the relationship. And so he has this giant violent moment and seems to go back home. And so the father of this woman's like, well, I guess we'll marry her off to someone else. And, and they did. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, I had to really work hard in this chapter to figure out how to read it and understand it as scripture. And I think we just have to step back to think like, what is the author of Judges trying to show us here? And I think really the author wants us to see just the, I don't know, the complete and depravity of Samson. He is lustful, he's impulsive, he's violent, and he has no care to follow the vow that he was born into. Um, Even the man that God uses to deliver Israel here is depraved and, and we'll see more clearly, but like we can't necessarily draw a conclusion from this chapter alone because really we're just seeing his total depravity in this chapter. Yeah. The, the character of the rulers, whether a judge or King seems to connect to the character of Israel. Oh, for sure. I mean, any culture. Well, yeah, that's true. And so, um, I think that's clearly being presented in this book as the sort of like increasingly questionable uh, judges as we go. And we end up with this one, which I think the author is really going out of his way to be like, look, 
This Samson one's the has worst. Very little redeemable qualities yeah. in terms of things you would look at in his life and go, yeah, we, that that's that was good. That was right. That was a good decision. That was following the Lord. Um, yet he's also a name in the hall of faith, and so there's right. there's something about Samson's story that is redeemed by God, mm-hmm. as if God can work through even even the, some of the messiest broken people um, to to enact what God is going to do and to and to redeem His people. Yeah. So, um, so Samson decides, like, he gets over it and then wants to go back and, like, consummate the marriage, I guess. And he shows up at home and his wife has been given away to his best man. Yeah. And he's got these, like, statements. He's like, well, I am, I am innocent this time and I have the right to destroy things. And, like, he has this sort of, like, a motif of, like, this is, this is okay in my mind. It's if, and that's what revenge mm-hmm. and anger sometimes does with us. It, it sort of posits us as, like, we're the innocent ones and we're just doing this because we feel like we have the right or the fairness to do it. And they're the ones in the wrong. And, and I think sometimes uh, we should, we should, take a look at our culpability in the process too, because Samson has just as much uh, blame and in, in how things escalate here as the Philistines do. And so um, he's angry about this wife tearing up and he does what all of us would do, which is tie 300 foxes together <laughs> and set their tails on fire. That's what Who I hasn't tried that? <laughs> <laughs> and so, but he burns down their like livelihood. This is food. This is their fields. This is their crops. And uh, the Philistines are angry, rightfully so. And they're like, who did this? And they're like, Samson, because uh, the, this, the, the, the father-in-law and the daughter uh, didn't end up getting married or the, the father-in-law didn't give away the daughter. And so what do the Philistines do? They don't get mad at Samson. They go and kill the father-in-law and the daughter instead. And so it's, it's just making it worse. And yeah. then Samson comes and goes, because you acted like this, because you were so clearly in the wrong, uh, let me go figure this out. And, and, and um, Samson uh, doesn't see his own contributions to the problem. He, he sort of accuses them of this. And, and luckily Judah sort of steps in as like the big old tribe um, it's showing up and they're like, uh, Hey, uh, you're causing a lot of problems. This is kind this of is getting out mess. of hand, Samson. Uh, and, and, and Samson's willing to be tied up by the Jude, the Judeans um, and be taken back to the Philistines uh, only to rip the bindings and cause a, a destruction of a whole lot of people by the bone of a donkey. Yeah. And so it's just a mess. It's just a mess of a story. And and we get the refrain here where it's like, and and there were 20 years of peace. Right. It's like, oh, like that's that winds up the cycle. We're gonna hear more of Samson in the next chapter, but that, that winded up the cycle. And that's the judge we got. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and it and once again, we don't see we don't see the law, we don't see priests, we don't see talks about sin, we don't see repentance in the people. Like this is just God using this mess of a man to defeat Israel's enemies. Like that, that is what he's using. Yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's a hard story. And, and I think sometimes we make a a sweet little kid story about of Samson. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that. Of all the people in the Bible for my kid to go, like, that seems like a good faithful person. Samson's not (laughs) probably someone I really want on that highlight list. Yeah. But then we get chapter 16 as well. Right. So this is like, what, an aside, a couple things that go down. They're like, oh, by the way, we should include these stories about Samson while yeah. he was judged. It, it, it's as if like, hey, we heard the story about Samson destroying a bunch of people in Gaza. Like, let, okay, let's tell that story too. Yeah. Samson took on a prostitute, uh, but eventually kind of falls in love with this woman. But before then, like, 
they try to lock him up, the, the people in Gaza, as if they're going to attack him, but seem to not know what to do. And then Samson wakes up and just decides to like take He's like, the walls city gates are closed and I want to leave. <laughs> so he just so. takes off the post of the gates and just kind of walks out. So at some point, the people in Gaza are like, we need a different tactic. We can't just fight him. Right. And so they try to use this woman named Delilah, who Samson seems to be greatly in love with. Um and uh, and guilts her sort of or uh, kind of uses her into they use her to try to get information out of him right. um, and ultimately find out that his hair is the source of strength. Which once again, like that's the supernatural power of God. That's not Samson. That's that's God empowered power. Um, and uh, and so they gets his haircut. He loses his power. They gouge out his eyes. They make him work in the mines basically. And his hair starts growing back, which will lead to the final story where they start parading him around at this festival to another God. And then Samson basically out of revenge. Once again, he, he says that like, I need to pay them back for gouging out my eyes. And he destroys uh, a bunch of Philistines in one kind of blow, bringing down the building. There you have it. <laughs> yeah. I think, I just still have not fully resolved everything we've read about in here. I think part of the lesson from Samson is that similar to Pharaoh, though we don't get nearly as many details about Pharaoh, God sovereignly uses whoever he wants to accomplish his purpose. And so we see God in his faithfulness delivering faithless people through a faithless man. But of course, it was a temporary deliverance. And then we, moving into Christ, we are a faithless people who were delivered by the one faithful uh, the most faithful man in Christ. And so I think part of what I need to continue to reconcile is that even when it doesn't seem right, I have to trust that God is at work in accomplishing his sovereign purposes. Um, because if I were like living in Samson's time, I would not be like, this is the guy that God is using to deliver us. And he's going to be in the Bible forever as a picture of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a mess. And, and, I think it's meant to convey to us just how downward of a spiral and how low, <clears throat> even in the bright spots, it's like the bright spots now are really dim at bright spots <laughs> uh, amidst the sea of darkness. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's trying to get us to the desire for a true, good, right, humble king. Um, and, and, and we'll get kind of there in the new Testament, certainly, or in the old Testament, we'll definitely get there in the new Testament with Jesus. Um, we'll see glimmers of hope in the Kings to come. Yeah. But thinking, I just see like in my mind with the imagery, like imagining some sort of like a black piece of fabric and a thread coming through it. That's white, um, or some kind of contrasting color. And that's the thread we see of God's faithfulness and something that seems so lost, but it's not completely lost. Right. And, and I think that's where Ruth comes in too. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the backdrop of Ruth is all like the story of the judges is going on. And so, um, you're answering my Old Testament suggestion for people to think about. Oh man, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to come up with another one before we're done with this recording. All right. <laughs> so, uh, your New Testament. Let's talk through that. So we're gonna be still in the Sermon on the Mount to finish up this episode, um, and we continue with Jesus going. Here's the teaching that you have heard. Here's me expounding on what is true about that teaching or what is the direction of my kingdom maybe in complete contrast to what the rabbis or what other people have taught jesus is going no this is what my kingdom is really about Mm -hmm. and so he speaks to lust and and 
that that once again just as we had sort of a fixed anger this is sort of a fixed desire this is sort of like a uh um, that that prolonged stare that prolonged thinking about that pondering um and and that sort of fantasizing that that can happen and, and in some ways uh in ways that sort of play out uh that that causes sort of a devalue or dehumanize justification yeah it becomes this a deep treating uh women particularly women as objects um and and jesus is hyperbole here of like gouging out ours like this like take this seriously this is right. so important for and i think he me. wants to emphasize um that those who have been transformed by the gospel should be willing to make significant changes and sacrifices in order to live under the domain of Christ. And I'm not saying significant, like literally cutting off your arm. But when we look at these beatitudes that we talked about last week, there is a significant life and paradigm shift that will have to happen for us to live this way. And that includes um, doing some really bold things when it comes to even the affections or the intentions of our heart. Yeah. And, and hear me, like, do I think the trajectory of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching like, so go live this way. Like that's how he finishes it. But at the same time to, to, to drive out all my lust and to drive out all my anger and to actually reconcile all the time. And in the oath section is to let my yes be yes, my no be like to do all those things perfectly. I can't like th- right. there's there's the impossibility about the law itself and without a new heart like this is why these new wineskins and a new covenant was all needed I need a covenant based upon my grace by the grace of God and not by my works and empowered by the spirit to actually live these things out and so as much as we will talk about like Jesus is teaching how we now operate and live as his citizens like we have to remember that fact too um, but yeah yeah. So that lust section, I think, piggybacks, uh, or this teaching uh, on divorce piggybacks right above to the lust. Like, look, if 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 the teaching around lust and desire and adultery and all that was about not objectifying and devaluing and dehumanizing women, uh, well, we got to be cautious about divorce and the teaching amongst the rabbis, particularly. Actually, one of the rabbi camps that Jesus is often aligned with, but here is in stark contrast with was like, Hey, if like a woman burns your toast, you could divorce her and you can, and, and it would cause women to be sort of left out, um, without care and support and structures and all that kind of stuff. And, and it would just cause havoc. And, and Jesus is saying like, no, like there's, there's grounds if, if there's infidelity and there, there'll be other things in the new Testament to give some grounds as well. Mm-hmm. But the, but the role of marriage and the role of divorce was, was, also for 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 the good of women it's not um if if it causes the abuse of the whole gender or the or the objectification or the marginalization like that that's not what it's intended for and so divorce is intended so you can just treat women as objects and get rid of them if you don't like them like that's not it and so um yeah yeah i think this section was kind of a real aha moment for me when i think about the old law because i think before i had believed that the old law was basically perfection and if we lived it out fully it would look like maybe a restored eden would have looked like but then we see through this that this is really not the case the old law was given and it didn't demand perfection uh, but it was God meeting the people where they were and leading them to take incremental steps towards his moral ideal. So Jesus answers clearly in here and explaining why God allowed divorce, even though it is not the ideal. And he also gives a picture of a better and a more perfect way. So we know through Ephesians 5 that the reason behind not divorcing is because marriage was created by God to illustrate a picture of Christ in the church, uh, Christ who will never leave us or forget us no matter how unfaithful we are. And we see Jesus again, too, working to restore dignity to all people. And 
ancient times, I'm pretty sure women couldn't divorce their husbands. Only men could divorce. And if they did, it would leave the woman destitute. She had no other options. So Jesus is not only working to protect women from living on the streets, but calling them into the beauty and permanence of a one flesh union that gives us a better understanding of Christ and the church. Yeah. True. So good. Oaths. Oaths. Yes. We've heard plenty about oaths lately, including in the judges. And so, um, but I, I think what Jesus is dealing with here is sort of how oaths had sort of taken their role at by his time. Um, you're at a you're in societies that have no real contracts like you would have for like a cell phone service or something like that. There's no written agreements, and so your word is your bond, and it's crucial. And so what you say you'll do is important that you do. But um, at some point, people were starting to to, to um, use oaths as if saying like I swear on my mother's grave or I swear like people. People were doing that, but but using they they knew they couldn't say I, I swear on Yahweh, uh, like that would have been offensive. But they started going, okay, but we can swear on all the other stuff that's near Yahweh, mm-hmm. and, and so we'll see in Matthew the, sort of teaching on this again. But like I swear on the golden temple, or I swear on the temple mount, or I swear on these godish things, like as if they're trying to drag God's name into a situation, and and they're and they were doing so in such a way that was trying to manipulate. The moment, the same way that my kids would be like, like almost overplay their hand where they're like, I swear I cleaned every bit of my room and it looks perfect. Like they would use that to try to manipulate the emotions of other people and be like, no, 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 I'm telling the truth because I swear on my mother's grave. It's like, no, we don't need to do that. And and certainly if we're using God to, to try to accomplish our persuasion, God wants no part in that. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Like it's simple enough. Don't don't try to manipulate people. Don't try to manipulate with these oaths and, and, and to kind of bring it back to the simplicity of yes and no. Yeah, I think the people who need to make the oaths or the promises, even in modern day, are the ones who aren't trustworthy. Uh, when you are someone who has to say, I really, really, really promise I'll be there on time, it means you have forgotten before and the person who's waiting on you doesn't trust you. And as Christians, we should be so reliable with our words that people trust we will do what we say we're going to do. I think this is a really important part of our witness, especially in the Western world where we put such a high value on honesty and transparency. We will stand out as unique in the world if we are reliable with our words and our actions. And then uh, we get to, I think, some of the hardest teachings of Jesus uh, around retaliation and love of neighbor or love of enemy. Um, And we literally just read Samson. So we see like even even the teaching of eye for an eye would have curbed the whole Samson story back towards um, something way more sane than kind of what transpired. Um, But but Jesus is also going, okay, like what I don't want you to become are people that try to seek um, n- greater response and justice and trying to take justice into your own hands, but, but to be people that um, look for a different way. And, and what Jesus doesn't advocate is, um, is um, uh, being a doormat. He's not advocating mm-hmm. that you just don't do anything. But um, when it says he's slap the slap on the left cheek, um, what he's pointing out or uh, the, the right cheek, uh, well, he's saying when you turn the left cheek, that means your first slap was probably on your right cheek, which would have been slapped by the left hand of somebody. And so it would have been um, an inappropriate and in a lot of ways unjust slap. Like that was even outlawed in certain areas that you would hit someone in that way. And so um, Jesus is pointing out like, look, like turn the other cheek, show that person or anybody else watching that that was not 
right, that that was wrong, that that was unjust. And if they try to sue you to take your tunic or your clothes, like the last thing that you have to wear, if they're trying, if you're so in poverty that the last thing you have is a shirt and they're trying to take that from you, just get naked and, and stand there in front of the court, in front of everybody going, look, look how they are treating me. Or if, uh, if a Roman soldier, they could practice this thing called ingar, uh, ingaria, where they would carry their, uh, the, they were allowed by like Roman law to force somebody to carry their pack for a mile. And, and it's like, okay, like it, once you, once you've met that, that legal oath, keep walking which they weren't allowed to do. And they actually uh, could get in trouble if they uh, had someone carry the pack for two miles. It's like, keep walking and carry that pack and show that person, make it uncomfortable for them, uh, for, for you to expose their injustice in this moment. Mm-hmm. And, and so that they would creatively expose injustice for what it is, not seek revenge or retributive justice in like an eye for an eye sense, um, but, but like God, civil civil forces that are in place deal with some of the legality of things, but you as a citizen, don't be the person who tries to just take justice and vengeance into your own hands. Yeah. And then he moves into a teaching similarly about loving your enemies. And Jesus starts by kind of quoting Leviticus 19. um, And he says, it says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But what the Leviticus passage actually says is you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Don't take vengeance or bear a grudge. And so what Jesus is doing is he is interpreting a misunderstanding of the Old Testament, not the Old Testament itself. Yeah, it, we, we even have quotes from other groups at the time that, that would teach uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy that had picked up on this Leviticus passage should do that. Yeah, and I think it's really, I mean, it's impossibly hard for us to not take vengeance. And this is why God says so many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we are not to avenge ourselves. Part of a life of faith and living in the upside down kingdom, again, goes back to these beatitudes. We are to be peacemakers. We are to be merciful, trusting God to make all things right in his timing. And I think um, the really upside down kingdom thing to do here is not just to love those that make you feel good, but to love and pray for those that make you mad or that cause you harm. The unfair professor to the person or the person who hit your car or the person who hurt you or someone you love. When we can do this, we are living in this kind of perfect completeness of maturity that can only come from God through Christ. Yeah. And once again, like the last, the last thing I, I just pointed out was like, Ingaria was like a Roman practice. Now remember these Israelites are occupied by Romans and not only that, but this crowd is all made up of a whole bunch of different people. Some of them hate what's going on down in Jerusalem. Some of them uh, uh, hate Herod and what Herod stands for. Some of them, plenty of them probably hate Rome. And so Jesus just taught on what to do with a Roman soldier and then follows up by, by saying, you know, your enemy like like the enemy I might have just mentioned, here's what I want you to do. And plenty of yeah. people were like, what should we do? Should we kill him? Should we drive him out? You're the Messiah. Your job is to drive him out. And he goes, we love him and we pray for them. It's like, so um, they're, they're probably jaws dropped uh, listening to him teach in this area of what it really looks like. And he's like, look, like the people, people love people that love him back. Even the Gentiles do that. Right. My kingdom looks different than that because that's what Jesus does. Jesus is the one who loves his enemies yeah. and, and and at the cross prays for them and prays for forgiveness. And we, while we were yet enemies or while we got sinners, Christ dies for us. And, and Ephesians 2 or uh, Ephesians 2 will present us as enemies as well. Right. And, and so, um, but we are shown grace in the midst of that. And so Jesus it's a good thing Jesus loves enemies because it causes us to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. And so now he causes, calls us to be the enemy lovers for, towards other people. Yeah. And it's just almost like a, a, 
preparation for them to know this and then to look back and remember, wait, I was an enemy of Christ. I was an enemy of the cross. And and and, and that's no way saying any of that's easy. You're no. going to need a whole lot of spirit to live out enemy love. And, and discernment we, to live out enemy love while true. also pointing out injustice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Giving we, to the needy. Yeah, we kind of get a little uh, three-set story around hypocrisy with a with an inclusion about teaching about prayer in there. Um, we, we get the word hypocrisy repeated all three times. And it, the, just so you know, the, the word hypocrite, uh, the Greek word is really actor. Uh, it's referring to anybody sort of that would have been acting in Greek plays and on stage and stuff like that. So he's saying, like, don't be like those actors. Don't be. That's that's just what the word is. Uh, we've co-opted it to, to adopt it in English, but that's really the, just the word. Don't be like the actors out there. Um, and, and I think what Jesus points out multiple times in these things is, is the, the problem of audience, are you doing your actions? Are you doing your generosity? Are you doing your prayer? Are you doing your fasting? Are you doing it for everyone else to notice that you're doing it? Like, is that the main goal is for people to see that? Or is the audience God? Like, even if it was in secret, even if no one saw what you would do, it, would you still do it? Is, mm-hmm. is God the true audience? And I don't think the secrecy thing is so that like we hide what we do. Like Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount by, by saying, look, look, you're salt light, like, let your light shine so that others see your good works and glorify your father. And generosity is certainly a good work. Um, but it's, it's the statement around, okay, like why are you doing this? The sort of heart check of, am I being generous because I get a pat on the back from other people who notice how awesomely generous I am? Or am I being generous? And like, and if I gave the check and no one on my row or in the back of the room ever saw me do that and no one ever said a word about it, I would still do it because I'm doing it because God wants me to do it. Yeah. It's it's challenging, but I also, Chris and I were talking about how, like, I think sometimes the the Sermon on the Mount lesson that we overshoot the most is this one. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to be so, so, so secret about it, which is kind of funny when you think about all the other things where we fall so short, why we feel like we need to be so secretive about our giving, and yet we are comfortable taking vengeance on or not loving our enemies. Right. And, and people need to learn and see fasting and generosity and prayer. And so, like... We have to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ and my generosity and my fasting and prayer too. But um, it's it's the why. It's the heart. It's the, the, what is your primary motive for doing this? And I think Jesus is ultimately checking the Pharisees and us yeah. uh, about that. Yeah. But then we get a longer section on prayer uh, that includes the hypocrite intro, but then Jesus kind of stops and, and introduces us to a way to pray um, and, and reminds them, look, like, yes, there's the Gentiles have a God that seems to like, they, they have to get the God's attention, but you don't have a God like that. Like God, God, the father is not that like he, he even knows your needs before you say them. Unlike the Gentiles who have to like, seem to like their gods are distracted. God knows your needs. And then he teaches them a prayer, a prayer that uh, honestly wouldn't have been uncommon for them in their day. Uh, and, and it covers quite a swath of of things to pray for. And he spends an extra couple of verses on things that would have been a little bit out of the ordinary. Um, the idea of forgiveness, like you would pray for God to forgive somebody else, but the idea that, that you would personally forgive others was, was a bit of an abstract idea. And Jesus comes along going, no, no, no. Like that's what you pray for mm-hmm. that, that you would also forgive others. And so um, part of being this new unique people. Yeah, and I think when we look at this, really what you're ultimately doing is laying every single thing down before God, submitting to him in every area and claiming total dependence on him in all things. And that's a really, I mean, that's a pretty wild and 
bold and faith-filled thing to do. So let's think about what we pray, how we are depending God through it, and if, if we truly believe what we're saying or asking for. Yep. And don't be like the hypocrites when you're fasting, which, yeah, once again, teaching that that same theme. Um, though fasting is always an interesting piece. I don't, we've, we've talked about it once before on the podcast, but I don't know if we want to get into it again. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I think just really simply we fast as a way to look forward as to what it look forward to what is to come, declaring through the symbolic act of being hungry, what we just prayed for in the Lord's prayer, that we trust God to be the provider of all things and our complete satisfaction. And our physical hunger is meant to be an outward expression of that true hunger for God. Yeah. And then we get um, about treasures in heaven. And remember, we just prayed, give us our day, our daily bread, which is, if we, that's a call back to, to manna in the desert. And it's, it's a piece of bread every day. It's not abundance. It's, bread and enough for that day and tomorrow we'll have enough for that next day and um, if that's true then then we operate out of a trust for god in those things that um that we don't live for the abundance of a bunch of bread but we also trust that daily we will we will have it in some ways that god will provide for us and so if we're not living for the abundance we're not trying to store up a bunch of stuff or spend a bunch of stuff then then we would see the world as um the, the word uh, healthy is also the word generous. We would see the world with a generous eye that we would operate in such a way that we're like, you know what? Heaven's not my, or earth's not my final destination. Heaven. Right. And so why, why would I keep all this stuff? Like, let me, let me give it away. Or why would I spend all that I can? Let me, let me figure out how to put more money into other people's hands than into more of what I'm going to eat and drink and wear and do and get gadgets and homes and everything else. Um, it's living for for a kingdom that we can't see. Yeah, I think it makes me think of that. One of the verses we've already read in Proverbs, give me neither poverty nor riches. Um, and is that truly something we can pray? And I mean, I think we can all, at least in our church context here at Resonate, we know God gives us our daily bread, but we don't just want our daily bread. We want our daily bread plus some French fries and a hamburger and a Diet Coke to go along with it. We don't want one pair of shoes. We want 10 pairs of shoes or we don't want a small piece of meat. We want a giant steak. And so I think how we act and behave around money and accumulating money and what we end up spending it on in either the name of wisdom or to enjoy is really, truly a picture of where our heart is. And do we love comfort or do we love um our own you know even what we just like we just talked about fasting do we love satisfying ourselves on these things more than we love waiting to be uh, see it fully satisfied in heaven yep and so flowing right out of that with a therefore nonetheless is don't be anxious yeah so so stop freaking out if we have a good god who's like a father who knows our needs before we ask them and you can ask every day for your bread then then why would we freak out? Like, why would we be so anxious? Like you're an image bearer of, of God, the creator of the universe. And he's a good father and he takes care of birds and grass and you're created in his image. You're, you're, you're far above a bird or a blade of grass. So he will take care. So, and, and does co- being anxious accomplish anything? No, it's like you can't make yourself taller or add a day to your life. The, the Greek is make yourself taller. Um, today has plenty of trouble in it. Deal with today. You can't control tomorrow. And as James was saying, you don't even know if tomorrow's going to happen. And, and so trust and, and live that way. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, like 
we all know that we're not supposed to be anxious about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear, but why? It's For us, it's not so much an issue of provision. Uh, most, if not all of us, have more than enough. Um, but I think you may have also read this and asked, but what about the people who are starving to death? Right. Or what about the people who are dying of preventable diseases? And I think that's where I look at Acts 2 and Acts 4 and think, well, who are the ones who are supposed to be providing and meeting these needs? If we have this abundance of wealth where we can have the bread and the hamburger and the French fries um, symbolically, metaphorically, then why aren't we sharing those with the people who are dying? Is is part of the reason some people are starving is because we as Christians are not working to meet their needs. Yep. Yep, certainly. And then we get a, a bit of a pivot around the conversation of judging others uh, and Jesus sort of like, are you going to use the same measure? Uh, do you do you hold people to a standard you don't even hold yourself to? Or do you understand that you desperately needed the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus and can operate in interacting with others and interacting with other sin in light of that? Like with that sort of humble position of, I am a sinner in need of a savior and my brother is a sinner in need of a savior and I'm, I may be no better than my brother. And, and if anything, Jesus is like, like you should even view your own sin as like a plank in your eye, let alone a speck in your brother's eye. And so um, it's trying to teach the, the right way to see, like, or do you see with that sort of, once again, that, that, that eye, the good eye, the generous eye, do you, do you see your brother that way? Yeah. And, and there's also just a one little line about the dogs and, and, and uh, it's such an interesting line. And I think what Jesus is after, because he uses metaphors that people would have identified as Gentiles, that we should be cautious on our expectations of, of what I expect my brother in Christ um, and to hold me accountable and for me to hold him accountable. Like that is part of it. We have agreed that Jesus is teaching as our standard and we will live to it. But those who aren't empowered by the Spirit and aren't filled with the Spirit, like, what do I expect them to do? And do I try to go, well, you need to live out all these laws of God without the Spirit of God to do that? Um, mm-hmm. or, or or am I much more generous in how I talk to them and, and speak grace into their lives? Yes, talk about sin. That, that is okay. I don't think we, we devoid ourselves of that. But um, we should be really cautious, I think, of how we interact in um, our judgment of others who don't have the spirit of God. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in, in any of these situations, those who have been shown mercy are not going to withhold that mercy from others Yep, because none of us deserve it. And then we get teaching on ask, seek, and knock um, about um, if we have a good God, if if he knows our needs, if if we're living out this unique kingdom life, like we, we come to him and, and we ask and we seek and we knock and yes, like we will have needs and needs will arise. And, and guess what? We have a God who is good and, and answers those needs. He may not answer it exactly how we desire and with all the details that we want him to answer with, but he does answer and he's not going to answer by trying to harm us. He may answer in things that we don't like, but it, it's like my children, like medicine is good for them and they hate taking it. And and yet I know giving it to them, like, look, this will be good for you in the long run. You hate yeah. it and you'll cry and, and it is not what you thought you wanted, but um, it'll be good for you. And so uh, God has a better perspective on that than we do. Yeah. And you guys, at the end of the day, our greatest need is salvation. And we really need only to cry out to God and he will offer us that gift which is salvation. And on top of this, we get to go to the Father to make these requests through the Son, who is our intercessor and our way to the Father. It's all centered around the work of Christ. Yep. And then the golden rule. Uh, Jesus takes a, a bit of a, a rabbinic teaching, though um, 
he usually in negation uh, that which is despicable to you do not do to your fellow this is the whole of the torah um jesus kind of reverses that and, and instead of avoid the things you don't want to happen to you jesus moves it so much further and says look like seek out ways to do good even even if they don't do return even if you haven't res- had them do anything to you you be the one to enact good towards your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Like this is the law and the prophets do good to others. Like that's what's laid out by Jesus here. Yeah. All right. Psalm 50. I liked your description of it, Chris. Yeah. It Go feels like it. a little bit of a court drama. Like God summons heaven and earth. You are my witnesses. And the rest of the Psalm kind of feels like a little bit of legal proceedings. So like God does speak to his grounds here. And then he's like, look, like you, uh, your sacrifices I'm not okay with right now. Like you are not sacrificing the way I desire. And not only that, but you have a bunch of hypocrisy in your life. And, and, and they sort of lays out two ways. So like you either get with God's law and desire and, and, and walk as God desires you to walk or you don't. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of left at the end there um, with that sort of reflection. Yeah. And I just think one other thing I really enjoyed looking at is just all the different descriptors or characteristics about God in the Psalm. Yeah. There's some good ones. All right. Old Testament, New Testament. So the Old Testament, I still want to challenge you as you do your research on the introduction to Ruth. What kind of glimmers of hope can you find in Ruth connecting with Judges that we just read, which seems like devoid of anything good? Yep. Um, And then in the New Testament, just pay attention to where we see faith in these next stories we read. Who had the faith? How was it expressed? Who was the faith for? All of those kinds of things. You stole a little bit of my New Testament. Uh, Old Testament, uh, I would say look at uh, kind of one of the upcoming judge stories this week and see um, maybe even pull up San, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and read, 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 read that and then pull up uh, the judge story because there's definite parallels in one of them. Um, and then as a New Testament, like I, I've already noted, like Matthew is saying some really sh- shocking things about Jesus up to this point. And, and we will continue to do that. Who does Jesus touch in the very next story coming out the Sermon on the Mount? And then whose faith does he commend in the very next story after that? Like all these stories, you're, if you were like a very traditional Israelite, it would be like, what is going on with this rabbi? Uh, it's so out of the box. And uh, I think that's important in terms of Matthew's presentation of Jesus here. Yeah. And so uh, thanks, y'all. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.